Let's look to the Lord together now in prayer. Now, Father, you know our needs. You know the struggles that are here in both the gathered state and the scattered state of your people. Well, we find our great opportunities, Father, to be able to explore who you are through your word, which is what we want to do now. Here was a man who we can see was socially distanced from those that he had been shepherding. We see a man who's experiencing physical isolation. But though physically isolated, at the same time, he has a God who has so deeply integrated himself into the very life of the Apostle John. And you're doing that even now with us. So Father, no matter where we're at, no matter what we're experiencing, no matter how we are viewing today, let alone tomorrow, pray now in the moments to come that you would warm these hearts, to engage these minds, to shape these wills. <clears throat> Forgive now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It happened in 1979, November 4th, Rocky Siegman thought this might occur, and sure enough, it did. He was a young Marine, and he was serving in the U.S. Embassy in Iran when an Iranian mob overwhelmed the compound and took Siegman and dozens of others hostage. In the story that's described in the Message of Hope, Dan Rooney, an Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and founder of the Veterans Charity Folds of Honor, recalls this conversation with Siegman about coping with isolation and how we can apply that to the days in which we now live. He said that when he hit these moments, Perspective, he found, perspective is so important for each and every one of us. On November 4th of 1979, Siegmund's life was changed when he was taken hostage as a Marine in Iran. Rooney tells us it's different, obviously, but the coronavirus has us all, in one sense, take, been taken hostage. Zeekman and 51 fellow Americans were held for 444 days, you see. They were subjected to extreme isolation, mental, physical abuse, amounting to torture. And for the first 30 days of his captivity, he recounted, he was chained to a chair and was only allowed outside seven times during his entire ordeal. Now, Rooney tells us that Zeekman said there were three things that enabled him to make it through the 444 days in captivity. Number one, prayer. Deep, 
rich, real conversation with God. Second, a sense of connectedness, even when they were not necessarily in his immediate presence, with two friends that he spent a lot of his time in isolation with. And third, he said, was his mind. God had to have sovereignty over his mind. Because according to Zekma, the action of recalling special moments in the past had the power to transport him out of his circumstances into a more positive mindset. The sovereignty of God. So now what we need to do is to see how the sovereignty of God related to what we are seeing now in this passage of Scripture. Because likewise, the Apostle John has been taken hostage. He is the last of the remaining apostles. And so much has happened over the course of his life experience. In AD 70, Jerusalem was conquered by the Romans. And now the Jewish Christians might easily have been saying to one another in their scattered state, but why did God allow that to happen? Maybe you grapple with things such as that as well. Why is God allowing what I'm experiencing to happen? What's fascinating is that roughly 10 years later, just short thereof, this is 79 A.D., Mount Vesuvius blew. Pompeii was covered in ashes. And throughout the Roman Empire, the unbelieving ones were thinking that the so-called gods, plural, were vindictive against the current regime in Rome. But you and I know the sovereign God was getting the attention of the entire Roman Empire. Just as in 70 AD, he was getting the attention of the Jewish Christians, once gathered, now scattered from Jerusalem. Now roughly 80 AD, God is now getting the attention of the rest of the empire. With all of these experiences now at the forefront, here is the remaining apostle who was evidently such a threat to Domitian that Domitian had him banished to an island known as Patmos. So what we want to do this morning is to look at three factors that we want to consider in times of social distancing that relate to where you and I are at right now in our own life experience, but connecting them to Palm Sunday. The first comes out of verse 9 through 11, that in times of social distancing, begin with me here by noting, first of all, the trials we face in Christ. And notice the in Christ phrase found in these verses. Because he began, I, John, your brother, partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I, John, he says, your brother. 
He doesn't say, I, John, the last of the remaining apostles, does he? No, there's this tremendous sense of connectedness, even in the scattered state, where the congregation he had shepherded was roughly 40 to 50 miles removed. There we find him now, and he's positioned in such a way that he's got to give time to where God is at, what God is doing, and how does all this relate to his own personal experiences. But he begins by saying, I'm connected with you. We're family. Once gathered, now scattered. Brother, sister, oneness. Now I want you to understand with me this morning that though sometimes gathered, sometimes scattered, there's a sense of connectedness that we find in Jesus Christ, you see. The oneness that you and I know through a personal relationship with the one who died for our sins. I, John, your brother. Notice there are three significant words and phrases that stand out that come next. He's a partner with you and me in the tribulation, the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Notice the word tribulation. Thlipsis is the Greek word, and it was used in that time period to describe a large stone that was placed upon an imprisoned individual where the person was having trouble breathing. There was such intense pressure placed upon the individual now, what John is saying, in essence, is that these are pressured times. We're experiencing the pressure of events. So he's going to have to rely upon the resurrected one to be the focal point of how he gets himself through these difficult times on the Isle of Patmos. Not only does he use the word tribulation, he also uses the word kingdom. He knows that the kingdom has both a, a present and a future aspect to it. Jesus is reigning in the present, but there will be a special, unique event still to come in the future when Jesus Christ returns. Connect Revelation 1.9 with Revelation 12.10, and you will see the connection between present and future aspects of this kingdom plan. But then there's a third, patient endurance. This carries with it the idea of the spirit of courage necessary in times of extreme circumstances. And this is what John needed now. Because in the midst of this call for endurance, he was going to be socially distanced from others. But he is not relationally distanced, you see, from his Lord. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance, but now I want you to see the combination of what comes next. That are in Jesus, see that little word in? In Jesus, on one hand, was on the isle called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so here's an individual who is in Jesus, but on Patmos. He knows not only what I would call his spiritual zip code, 
He also knows his geographic zip code. I am surely on Patmos, but I am in Jesus on Patmos. Now, wherever you're at right now in this live stream, where I want you to be able to say, yes, I'm in my living room, or yes, I'm in the house right now, but I am in Jesus in this house. I'm in Jesus no matter where you find yourself in. Now, take a good hard look with me at Patmos. You can see it on your screen. It's rugged. The terrain's challenging. The setting's difficult. It's about 25 miles in circumference. It's mountainous. It was viewed as a place of banishment. I've walked a portion of the island. Like we said, it's about 40 to 50 miles, you see, from Ephesus, surrounded by the sea. And as this fisherman looks out over the waters and he's able to reflect upon the times that he had experienced with Jesus Christ, his Lord and as his Savior, he would be able to say, yes, I'm socially distanced from the people in Ephesus, but I am not relationally distanced from my sovereign God. I am not merely on Patmos. I am in Christ. On Patmos. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you're not merely in your house at this moment. You are in Jesus in your house at this moment. We want you to experience the richness that is found in relationship and fellowship, the dynamic that comes with a thorough understanding of who God is, what God's doing. Yes, tribulation, intense pressure, even pressure on the chest is the way he would describe it. Kingdom, present, future, patient endurance, the courage to see it through to the very end. You're able to do so not merely because you're in your own Patmos experience, but you are in Jesus. And Patmos, you see, is what we find John saying to himself at this point. But why is he there? He was courageous enough in his witness to be a threat to the emperor, Domitian, that he is there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know, in that time period, Christians were viewed as atheists. And the reason they were viewed as atheists is because they did not put their faith in the gods of Rome, but rather they put their exclusive faith in the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so a lot of the blame that had taken place during the days of Nero, and as a result of the volcanic ash falling upon Pompeii, the blame was placed upon Christians. Many were called as atheists at this point, because if only they had been loyal to the gods of Rome, then this would not have happened. So here they find themselves saying to themselves, now God has swept us away from Jerusalem 70 AD, we're scattered, and now likewise in the Roman Empire we're being blamed for the fact that we're not loyal to the gods of Rome. Where does that put us? In these pressured moments, he's got to remind himself that I am... I'm here, I'm in Christ, I'm called 
I'm called to persevere. It was 1941. Winston Churchill was delivering one of the most famous speeches in history at Harrow School. In the midst of the darkness, you see, of the Nazi threat, he would say in particular, surely from this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never in nothing great or small, large or petty, give in. I can almost see the Apostle John nodding his head in approval at this point because this is what patient endurance requires. In your loyalty to Jesus Christ, you live for him, under him, through him, for his glory alone. You're up to verse 10. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day. Realize now he's scattered from his congregation. They're scattered, not gathered. But rather than saying, I'm going to treat this like any other day of the week, this is the Lord's day. So even if he's isolated from others, he's still in fellowship with the Lord. And he's marking the distinctiveness of this particular day and God is so honoring that fact that is recorded in Scripture. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like, like a trumpet. Now it's interesting because all throughout Scriptures, you're going to find again and again and again this sound of the trumpet being offered to the people as a rallying point to draw them together. You'll find it, for example, in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verse 16, verse 6. Well, he hears this voice like the sound of the trumpet, and what is the voice saying to him? Write. Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, take a look at the map that's on your screen. And as you look at the map that's on your screen, what you will find is that what God has done at this point is that he has established these particular seven churches in what now is known as modern-day Turkey, and that particular map gives people the understanding of, of, of the fact that God wanted to communicate this message to one and to all. The movement was such that it was a postal route, a postal route. It gives opportunity then for the message to be transferred from one setting to another. And this route, route, however you like to pronounce it, well, it was established by the Roman Empire for the sake of developing a good road system for communication for their emperor. And here now, God is utilizing the decisions that were made in the empire in order to be able to communicate his message once and for all. Now, there you have it. 
there you see is the very first factor in times of social distancing. You note with me, first of all, the trials we face in Christ, not outside of Christ, in Christ. Like a heavy pressure on the chest, but greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. Now you're ready then for the second significant factor about times of social distancing. We said with the first was the trials we face in Christ in verse 9 through 11. But the second has to do with the portrait we possess of Christ found in verse 12 down through verse, down through verse 16. Now look very carefully at how this begins to unfold. Because now the Apostle John, as he's reflecting upon all that's occurring here upon this island, begins to ponder the significance of this one he walked with, talked with, learned from, grew through. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. On turning, on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. This is interesting. Now this word seven is going to be repeated again and again. As it's repeated again and again, you're going to see here how this relates to what we're looking at. In verse 13, in the midst of the seven lampstands, these lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Who's this one known as like the Son of Man? Well, if you spent any time studying the book of Daniel, you'll find that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel, in a vision that he was given by God, 6th century B.C., I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man man. This phrase, this title, Son of Man, was the preferred title that Jesus Christ used to describe himself. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, we're told, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise Again, the same occurs now again in Revelation chapter 1. And so you can see now how the Apostle John is saying to himself, I remember how Jesus Christ spoke very clearly about how he's going to die and three days later be raised from the dead and how he referred to himself in terms of a title as the Son of Man. He was linking it back to Daniel. Well, now, notice what he has to say about how Jesus Christ is described. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool. Why is he talking this way? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, this was the description that was given of the Ancient of Days. So what we find here now is that he is being, in essence, linked to God the Father, co-equal to God the Father. You read very carefully of this description. 
Link it furthermore to the way in which we find it described, for example, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. These are symbols of the preexistence and the sinlessness of Christ. But then you have the next statement. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Evidently, the book of Daniel was very significant to John. And you can almost picture now the way in which the Apostle John was pondering the eyes of Jesus. How he would sweep and around the vicinity of where he was at, looking at the various people that were surrounding him. And then he would look at the cross and ponder the eyes of Jesus that were there. And then you and I are told that his feet... His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His feet. Well, the word that's used here in the original carries with the idea of beaten brass. You think about the feet of Jesus Christ on that cross. And then you think of brass in the book of Daniel. Brass standing for strength, for loyalty to God. And then you move on to the next word at this point. And here you find that this voice was a voice like the, like the roar of many waters. Now you read that, and what comes to your mind right away is that the waters were very significant to the Apostle John. He was a fisherman. And I remember standing on the Isle of Patmos and looking out over the waters. Now again, we said Patmos is about 25 miles in circumference. And as you look out over the waters, what you see at this point is the blueness, the stillness of it all. And the waters are used over 25 times in the book of Revelation. They were significant, you see to the Apostle John, this description that he's using here. It's gripped his attention. It's got his heart. There is a portrait here that comes to the forefront. Look very carefully at your screen, and you can see the waters of the Aegean that are there in their richness of color, who have probably, which have probably gripped, gripped, gripped the mindset of the Apostle John at this point. So he's looking at that, and he's pondering that, and he's thinking about the various ways in which Jesus Christ had demonstrated such love to the Apostle John. Portrait. Pause and think about it. You've got to be able to get your focus when you're thinking about Jesus. Apollo 13. Stories told that on day six of the ill-fated mission, the astronauts needed to make a critical course correction. If they failed, they might not even return to Earth. And so in order to conserve power, the onboard computer that steered the craft had to be shut down. The astronauts needed to conduct a 39-second burn of the main engines. How do you steer 
Well, the astronaut by the name of Jim Lavelle determined that if they could keep a fixed point in view through their tiny windows, they could steer the craft manually. The focal point turned out to be their destination, Earth. As shown in the gripping 1995 movie, Apollo 13, for 39 agonizing seconds, Lavelle kept his focus. In his case, keeping the Earth as the focal point. And by not losing sight of that reference point, you see, the three astronauts avoided disaster. They needed a reference point. Now, what we find here with this portrait of Jesus Christ is that what the Apostle John is saying to you and me in the scattered state, as well as the gathered state, but in particular times of social distancing, this speaks to us. We need a focal point. And that focal point has to do with the portrait that is being described here of Jesus Christ. And so watch how the various aspects of Jesus Christ bodily are being expressed. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice, and oh, John knew that voice. It was like the roar of many waters, and he thinks of how Jesus Christ walked the waters, you see. But then look what comes next. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Domitian was threatened by this one that was known as Jesus Christ. Look very carefully at the coinage that appears on your screen. If you look very carefully, that coinage is dedicated to the son of the emperor who died. How many stars are on that coin? The answer? Seven. This is the counterfeit to the reign of Jesus Christ. The emperor at that time, Domitian, was the one who instituted high levels of persecution against the Christians. You can see a picture of him as well, if you look carefully at your screen. So now we see the authentic and we see the counterfeit and clash with one another. But the matter of fact is, is that the emperor's son, who's described on the coinage, remained dead. But the second member of the Trinity was raised from the dead. And now you can almost imagine the Apostle John reflecting upon his race against Peter to the empty tomb to find that the one we know as the second member of the Trinity had vacated the premises. He was alive. And because he was alive, what John is able to say, I'm going to take that whole sense of the aliveness of Jesus Christ and allow that aliveness to penetrate my own Potmas experience. Are you allowing for that? The relevance of the resurrected Savior on this Palm Sunday as you're anticipating Easter to connect to whatever it is you're experiencing right now in your own personal realm. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword. Notice the imagery of the power of the Word of God that's unfolding here in the way in which this portrait is being offered to you and offered to me. And then you're told that his face it was like the sun shining, shining in full strength. Now, what have you covered so far? In times of social distancing, number one, you're noting with me the trials we face in Christ. Tribulation, kingdom, and then there's this whole realm you see here of patient endurance. On Patmos, yes, he was, but in the spirit on Patmos. So you've got the trials we face, you've got the portrait we possess, but now thirdly, I want you to see the assurance we receive from Christ. And so you pick it up now in verse 17. And John says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. We see that happening throughout the scriptures, like Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. There's this tremendous sense of the holiness of God. We sense that in Peter in Luke chapter 5, where he wanted to social distancing from Jesus. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. But notice what Jesus does. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. Right hand? Where did you see the right hand previously in this passage? Why, in verse 16, we're told, in his right hand he held the seven stars. But now in verse 17, this one whose hand is sovereign over the universe is personal in John's experience. He laid his right hand. On me, the pierced hand, the one who's the hand that Thomas had to examine, that John describes in his gospel account. Stories told of when William Dixon lived in England, he was a widower, lost his only son. One day he saw that a house of one of his neighbors was on fire. And although this elderly owner was rescued, her orphaned grandson was trapped in the blaze. We told that Dixon climbed an iron pipe on the side of the house, lowered the boy to safety. His hand that held on to the pipe was badly burned. Well, Shortly after the fire, the grandmother died. We're told that the townspeople were wondering who was going to care for the boy, and there were a couple of volunteers that appeared before the council. One was a father who had lost his son and would like to adopt the orphan as his own. But we're told that William Dixon was to speak next. But instead of saying anything, he merely held up his hand. When the vote was taken, the boy was given to his rescuer. John's rescuer has laid his hand 
upon John. And notice, notice what he says. Fear not. Take all the wording that is found in Scripture, the various fear nots. Link them, you see, to what's found here. Allow for them to speak to your heart. And maybe this morning, what you're feeling at this point is a tremendous sense of a of anxiety about what the tomorrows of life hold. I don't know if John was listening to the afters. I don't know how his Wi-Fi was on Patmos. But in their song, Fear No More, listen to these words. Every anxious thought that steals my breath, it's a heavy weight upon my chest. Sound familiar? As I lie awake and wonder what the future will hold, Help me to remember that you are in control. You're my courage when I worry in the dead of night. You're my strength because I'm not strong enough to win this fight. You're greater than the battle raging in my mind. I will trust you, Lord. I will fear no more. And in each and every subsequent verse, the afters go back to that chorus. I will trust you, Lord. I'll fear no more. Is that where you're at right now? Then say it. I will trust you, Lord. I will fear no more. You link that to what comes next. I'm the living one. I died. And behold, you see, I'm alive forevermore. Here is the story of what unfolds over the course of these next seven days, leading us through Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, to Easter Sunday. And so we have the tremendous opportunity to see the connectedness between Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. Three times in the book of Mark, Mark was informing us that Jesus taught the people, John included, the disciples, this whole matter of connecting the death and the resurrection of Christ. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. And the apostle John heard it three times on the road to Jerusalem. And here he is on the Isle of Patmos, pondering, reflecting, thinking. Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Right there for the things that you've seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery, and you say, Gary, mystery? The Greek word mysterion carries with it the idea of that which is concealed to those who are outsiders, but revealed to those who are insiders. Meaningless to those who are outsiders, meaningful to those who are insiders. And now notice how this begins to unfold at this point. Because he then goes on to say this. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
and Christ is the source of the light. So the churches are meant to be lampstands, lit by the one who is the source of light, Jesus Christ. And likewise, in both our scattered states and eventually our gathered state, we're meant to be the lampstand, illuminating the darkness, allowing people to understand the portrait of Jesus Christ found in these verses. He's alive. There you have it. The trials we face in Christ, 9 through 11. The portrait that we possess of Christ in 12 through 16. The assurance we receive from Christ, do not be afraid, fear not, verses onward, 17 through 20. And we're back now to this marine. This marine, Rocky Zeekman, held hostage for 444 days, grappling with a social distancing. How do you cope with isolation? How do you handle this social distancing? Deep prayer, he said, a fellowship with those who likewise experienced isolation. And the third thing was to give my mind to God, he said, because he ended his interview with these words, the mind is such an amazing tool. But here we have an awesome reminder to all of us, even if we are in a different kind of hostage setting, such as this coronavirus, we've got to bear in mind we are still blessed because three days later, Jesus Christ was not held hostage by death, but was raised from the grave. And so, Father, minister now to each and every heart. Give us, Father, the greater sense of where you are at in the midst of the trials of life. Give us a greater understanding of the portrait that's revealed about Jesus found in these verses. And then may we embrace the assurance that's found here, the great fear not. Instead, Father, of being held captive to fear, we're being mobilized by our Savior to make a difference where you have placed us for your kingdom glory. And for this, we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.